0: Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. The history of barbecue in Texas goes back centuries when the Caddo and other indigenous peoples roasted game over open fires. The tradition familiar to us today goes back to when Spain laid claim to this new world with their goats, lamb, and livestock. Immigration helped evolve barbecue traditions across different parts of Texas, from roasting cabezas, beef heads in a pozo, a hole in the ground in South Texas, to Czech and German smoked meats in Central Texas, to African-American-inspired barbecue in East Texas, to open-fire cowboy cooking in West Texas. One South Texas pitmaster is carrying on the tradition started by his grandfather. Adrian Davila is the owner and president of operations at Davila's Barbecue in Seguin, a half hour's drive east of San Antonio. He's the co-author of Cowboy Barbecue, Fire and Smoke from the Original Texas Vaqueros. It's both a cookbook and a family history. Davila and I spoke near his food truck, Davila's on Wheels, at the Besame Bar and Food Truck Park in San Antonio. Davila says his deep dive into his family's food history began by prying information from his grandmother, who was married to the man who started it all, Raul Davila.
1: I I tried to extract as many things as I could from my grandmother before, God rest her soul, she was no longer with us. And part of that, because extracting the story a lot of times of minorities and their businesses, I found that there wasn't a lot of photos. Or recordings, you know, was a different way of tracking memories, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to go by. So I really had to ask my grandmother, like, how did grandfather start this? Where did he get this recipe? Why was a Hispanic young male cooking? See, that didn't really seem to add up because a man's place, you would presume, wasn't in the kitchen. So as I understood it, my grandfather and his brother, Adolph, who also was part of the originators of Douglas Barbecue, would hobo on a train to Kerrville to go work in some restaurant. And my great-grandfather was also, had a, like a store, per se, grocery store, and they didn't want to work with him. They went to work at this restaurant and somehow got on with this owner and went back and forth. To How Kerville. old was he? You're saying
0: he a like whole boat on a train? Like 14 years old. Like wow. 14 years old. Wow. So
1: that's what my grandmother told me. And so I guess his interest in food and producing food came at a very early age. And then they worked as butchers in a meat processing plant that also smoked meats. So I think there you would find the first time he was barbecuing, right? But it was in a forced trade, as a job, but also in a commercial scale. So I think after that is when they formulated that and say, Hey, we can sell this also there was that um entrepreneurial spirit about him that he always had.
0: What I think is also interesting, sort of in this part of Texas, there is your Mexican, Latino influence and you also have your German influence. Mm-hmm. And so I think your predecessors had sort of that blend of those two right for
1: sure you know speaking of the processing plant which in reference would be the davis processing plant in luling in the 20s and 30s and 40s those sausage recipes and i'm sure those recipes were were german influence but like we as well known like all our tios and our grandfathers cooked a certain way in the backyard and cooked other things and, and my grandfather brought those things together and what is natural when, you know, you just know what you see and observe. And, you know, he was likely taught those German ways of making the sausages and those ingredients. But, so, you know, maybe we could use a little more cayenne in there, <laughs> you know, or, or some comino or, or, you know, those things that have a distinct Latino, per se, flavor profile, picante.
0: And so um, I think at what point maybe did your family realize that this is a tradition that goes way deep beyond just maybe that initial love of cooking, that this style of barbecue, the slow cooking of the meats, this is a tradition that extends overseas into Europe and also, you know, through the indigenous pathways here in South Texas. Mm
1: -hmm. No, I think you'll maybe find my answer a little unexpected. But I, I think as the information was much less transferred, I think my grandfather would have been more oblivious to that and would have only known what he was shown. And that was barbecue to him, but not realizing where those other flu- influences came from, although they came naturally. And they're so common because I, when I wrote the book, found that out that in all parts of the world, they do it in a similar way, burying an animal, wrapping things you know, to keep them moist. And uh, doing it for a communal reason, a lot of times is what barbecue is. It takes a lot, you know, to do those things, the like building of the fire, and it takes a lot of labor. And I think that is the commonality that you discover.
0: So talking about your book, you actually did sort of do a deeper dig into the roots of food. So can you talk about that journey? Yeah, I, I did, and it was purely by accident.
1: Because <laughs> when I look back on the things that I wrote about, you know, it's, it's not easy to bury the Llan Baruakoa. Digging a hole and having the magay and all of what it entails, it wasn't going to be easy for somebody to just do in their backyard. So in retrospect, I think, what the heck were you thinking? You know? <laughs> But it was. It was about, like, the discovery, the history, and why we did these things the way we did them. And where where that story lied. Why did we cook underground ultimately was to keep things away from the predators. And it was always in a communal sense because it took all of those things. And why did we stop eating corn tortillas in South Texas? When did they switch to flour? And that actually has a backstory with the missions in San Antonio where the missionaries viewed the indigenous population of worshiping corn because of the seasons and their life revolving around it. So I was like, that's why I had six to eight tortillas (laughs) with every meal and my big bowl of picadillo. We wouldn't even use forks. It was the
0: tortilla. The tortilla was your your fork, yeah. And we laugh,
1: and it's funny. That's this little chubby... (laughs) <laughs> right, six to eight tortillas. What else are you gonna be? But if you really think about the profound socioeconomic effect that really had across our population, now when you see with diabetes and obesity, and really that like socioeconomic religious factor of a tortilla.
0: Yeah, I mean colonization really is still being felt today. Yeah,
1: right. And you know, for some to be traced, you know, it's not all attributed to a, a tortilla, but you can see how just. Those small things, how much they had to do with who we are today, of the difference of flour tortillas in South Texas, not to be had, in typically in Mexico. That's that's home of the corn tortillas.
0: And so you are a third generation pitmaster. Did you always know this is what you were going to get into? Or did you maybe think, I maybe I should be doing something different? <laughs> or did maybe your family encourage you to do something different?
1: None of the above. <laughs> so my family never encouraged this. Again, uh, we weren't typical, what you would say, immigrants. From what I can trace, I'm at least a fifth generation Texan. But that doesn't mean the borders didn't cross us. So we were here. Long before, long before, but because of that, and the way, I guess you know, the mentality of of the minority, my grandfather and my dad, they didn't want us in the business. They wanted us to get our education. I, um, being from a small town, didn't want people to think that was going to be my easy way out. So I said I would never do that. Right. So went off to college and did that thing. That wasn't a successful venture.
0: Well, what did you study in college?
1: Not enough. <laughs> You know, I went in as a business major And not before long, you know, that first or second year A sink or swim, and it was a sink for me (laughs) You know, I didn't have the attention span But when I came home, did what I, the last thing I thought I'd ever be doing When I saw what created memories with food Taking such a primal thing, per se, of a slab of meat and breaking it down and creating what was barbecue or a sausage and that process and walking from the back to the front and seeing everybody smiling and having a good time like oh that's what you create with food so then I was I was locked in I was sold like I'd never turned back after that because whether it's a wedding or a birthday or whatever it is you're always creating memories of food and it's a a very human trait embedded in us is to connect with people connect with food and that's our identity
0: and i think you're right you know the memories whenever you think of a certain event you always mention the food good and bad you exactly (laughs) you never remember maybe what somebody was wearing or what somebody said or when it happened you you remember exactly what you ate and Mm -hmm. so again yeah like you said those memories of food are so Mm -hmm. tied to who we are yeah
1: and i guess also just thinking of those things when you know, you grow up in a small town, and of course, anywhere I went, I was what people called me, barbecue, you know, like, where's the brisket, which was annoying, but in a marketing <laughs> sense, you're like, yes, think about me when you see food, <laughs> that's what we want, but also, you know, the conversations that came with those, it's like, oh, your grandfather cooked the best thing, or you guys catered my aunt's passing, which is an emotional tie, so then you're connected with the community in a different way. Or you guys donated to our benefit. That really meant a lot. So it goes beyond food and its community. And, you know, and that's kind of also like the basis of a business. You know, it starts with your community and it takes a community to support anything. You know, we will be celebrating 65 years in Seguin this year coming up. So, you know, as much as that is when the stars have to align, you know, the community has to support and there's nothing without it.
0: Adrian Davila is the owner of Davila's Barbecue and CEO of Davila's Food Group. When we come back, Davila found the inspiration to write a cookbook in his own family's history.
1: It was there, my family's story. It hadn't been told. It's emotional Uh, because then you had a place at the table.
0: Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Traditional Texas barbecue consists of grilled or smoked meats like sausage, pork, and brisket. It's done differently in different regions of Texas, and the immigrant experience has further diversified what we know as barbecue. It's now a global melting pot with Asian and even Italian traditions. And barbecue is also going back to from whence it came – to Mexican and indigenous influences. Adrian Davila is a third-generation pitmaster in South Texas. He says his Tex-Mex style of barbecue was still underground, so to speak, when his star began to rise in the food world around 2016.
1: Uh, it wasn't even really talked about. It didn't have its place at the mesa at the table. Around that time, I had been, per se, discovered by a production company, and they had pitched me to Scripps and Food Network and I had been on a couple of shows and there was like that trajectory and their idea was to continue to grow my profile so they could sell me in the show and all those things. So uh, my agent at the time was like, we need you to write a cookbook. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the hell? How do you do that? And so That had un-
0: never crossed your mind.
1: I had it had crossed my mind many times. See, uh, again, you know... When you, like, dream and dream as a family, you always say, I wish we were on a food network. That would be so cool. <laughs> I wish we had a cookbook. That would be so cool. But when it happens, it's like, what do you do with it? And the thing with a cookbook was like, yeah, we've always wanted a cookbook. We've always talked about that. What is that? And so the, the answer, I had an agent, and then we pitched certain things to these these first-rate publishers, top house publishers. Boom, they're sending the pitch. And I had an interview with one and she said, there's so many barbecue cookbooks out there and there's so many Mexican cookbooks out there. Why you? And I was like... (laughs) Right, because this was real business. We were talking real money and real things that if they're going to take you on as a project, why would this work? So all like my proud self with my brisket and my sausage recipe, I was like... like, (laughs) Yeah, you're right. And I said, well, wait a minute. Nobody's written about the mollejas. Nobody's talked about the underground barbecue. Barbecue's defined one way. We define it other ways. (laughs) And that's what we're gonna do. So like, it was there, my family's story. It hadn't been told. It's emotional. Uh, Because then you had a place at the table, you know. Um, And so, that's when I said, I got it. We'll do what we did in the back with the lenguas and the cabezas and all of those things. And the things that, you know, they weren't considered barbecue then, or you didn't put hot sauce or salsa, salsa macha on barbecue and all these things. You look at it now, it's like, poof. I was the first Mexican-American with a nationally, internationally published cookbook. Now, we all know there's plenty of people capable or more capable but the story hadn't been told and it was published in 2018. Now you probably have 40 Tex-Mex barbecue books and even look at the brands and really what's at the forefront or look at Texas Monthly's top list you're gonna have these offshoots of all Tex-Mex barbecue which we've already been doing for it's just who we are. We always put in a tortilla I put avocado there, like I on it. You know, we always took the lengua and had that. In the pit, like that was like what you call family meal. That was family meal. Like it was my deal with my grandpa, they always you know, it was our our identity. Which again, when I looked and looked, nobody's done that. Like, I have that. That's who I am. And then beyond barbecue and where that came from, where those methods came from, it was a lot deeper Then we're maybe shown and again this was before like 23 and me and those things as popular so I went to Avila Spain where Davila is from mm.
0: is and that de Avila? De Avila, uh-huh. that's for the
1: Avila and I found the armistice you know it's like oh the Spanish Inquisition that's why people <laughs> laugh it, it wasn't all just one people crossing a river but my family, you know, I had part of the good and the bad story with my family. So they were silver miners who came over to Peru following the money.
0: Through South America then. Through South America and
1: Honduras. But the very first Pedro Davila was on one of Christopher Columbus's first voyages. Wow. Sounds like... I want to be part of that part
0: of the story (laughs) Well as much as we hate it Or deny it We all got a little colonizer in us You you know know? And and again I was like
1: The story is told a lot One way It's like Crossing the river Like you know We crossed an ocean And you know We were entrepreneurs And horse traders So Then the time with the vaqueros And who the vaqueros were also, oh, not every cowboy looked like John Wayne. No, that wasn't what it was about. The vaqueros were typically, as I found out and learned. I don't want to sound like a historian. I'm not. I literally just like, had to research it. And they were typically soldiers that were in the Spanish-American War, or whatever war was beyond that, who had learned survival skills in the wild. So them coming to the newfoundland and bringing pork you know, like made sense because they could survive in the wild. And then from there, the business of moving the cattle for the church, in essence, was those were the cowboys. They didn't drive wagons. My cattle lived off the land. And again, so what a cowboy was in my imagery and what it truly was, it was like, that's not what we learned, you know. And I had that in me. It was right underneath me. Uh, it wasn't part of my family story. So, you know, not everybody looked like John Wayne.
0: Yeah, I think everybody who is Latino or Mexican American, I think we all have sort of that sense of discovery. We know what we've learned, but then you learn something new, not in the classroom, but maybe something that you learned from your family or like you were learning during your trips where. There is this story out there that we don't know about ourselves.
1: I think one of the biggest ones for me, by far, when I had the opportunity to write the book with a, a very well-respected author, Anne Volkheim, she wrote Guy Fieri's first three books. She's very much a well-established author. And we knew then that we had to get like all of these, the story right, the trajectory and the crunch, all of those things. We're putting it out there, and, and now these days, the Internet you had to get it right. <laughs> So, when I was digging deeper on my family's story, there was the picture of Kandu Davila, And why is his hat round? Why does he have a beard? And, like, why does he look like a Jewish guy? So, when I went to the grave sites of Lulian and Lockhart and found all these, like, mid-1800s, late-1800s grave sites, there's all these stones of uh, the Star of David. Like, everywhere. And I'm like... Hold up. (laughs) I have never seen a synagogue in these parts of Texas as I grew up. But then I was like, of course. But the Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition. But it was a story never
0: told. They all went underground.
1: They all went underground. And I forgot who it was I asked. It was an elder. She's like, yes, Saturday nights. my My mom would light candles. And we would have this bread. But I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> what like, I and just they never floored. made the connection never made the connection wow. and I see how underground those things were and again by co-author Ann she was just like that's the picture when in South Texas how many descendants of Jewish descent do you really know especially Hispanics I've never known one so again those were one of those things that you learn yeah. along the way and I was just like <laughs> it was so cool you know. but again it made sense the part of the country out of spain was always under because um, you had north africa and of course like the moroccan and, like all of that like the moors and the muslims and the christians all battling for that pivotal area yeah they're like yeah makes sense that wouldn't have ever been told to us so i just always found those things extremely fascinating
0: Well, going back to your business, you've got this business in Seguin, which is a small community outside of San Antonio. You have your new food truck here kind of in the heart of San Antonio, kind of a more stripped-down menu of what you've got in Seguin. But uh, we were talking earlier, and you said you don't have the desire to really go to the big-time market. You want to keep it here at home.
1: Bigger markets in the right steps and the right strategy, I think San Antonio It's on the cusp of a a boom because of many reasons and obviously the demographics that are continuously changing in Texas and what people like. But, yeah, if anything, I would like to go to a bigger market because I like to compete and see, you know, I've always grown up in a small city. Uh, That means, you know, the smallest high schools and those things and, you know, who you're competing against, you know, the bigger market is the bigger fish and the more competition. And I've always been that person to want to be a bigger fish in a bigger pot
0: everybody suffered during the pandemic mm-hmm. and you know we're still sort of feeling repercussions now how are you able to stay afloat
1: we um by the true luck of the structure of the business model the restaurant that we operate out of now it's not a huge barbecue palace and we have a strong to go part of our business model during the drive through our trajectory of our business actually went up 40%. We wow. went the opposite way. Wow. Where people with bigger staffs and a lot of square footage in their dining rooms, it was the opposite for them. So, in the last four to five years, our business has been number wise the best it's ever been. Of course, challenges with labor and margins, but our business model went the opposite way. We have an online business that we ship our barbecue all over the United States. With GoBelly on GoBelly.com, that went up about 200%. Wow. And so other things just adjusted.
0: <laughs>
1: you know. But no caterings, quinceaneras, all those things went out the door, but our, our in-house sales went through the roof.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah. just to have that community support.
1: Yeah, you never know what's going to happen, like what's going to work. Where I saw other business models, if they relied on a lot of indoor... Um, or in-house seating or bars at the time, that was definitely much more of a challenge. I did fail to mention that we are in the, the Frost Bank Center now, the Spurs home. So we are second year there. Uh, last year, the AT&T Center.
0: The uh, former at Center. The former AT&T, the Center. Former AT&T ah. Center. So with all the
1: excitement of uh, Victor Wembanyama, and ticket sales expected to be definitely on the up and up, we'll have a bigger presence there with two locations. And again, a further footprint in San Antonio, because the Spurs are all about San Antonio and their culture. So for us to be a part of that is really, you know, really huge for us. So I've definitely had to adapt more to a, a CEO mentality in order to distribute, you know, uh, my duties and put the right people around me. I wasn't brought up like that. If we were mom-and-pop operation to where do-it-yourself or it doesn't get done. And I've literally had to contradict myself and really put my trust into people and build a team around me
0: and so do you still have your family working oh my dad's
1: 73 years old going on 74 works 70 hours a week he's (laughs) his perspective is i'm going to be right here at the counter servicing people and that's that's what i believe the secret to success is which it has been and was and that's the secret to our success is I like Papa, it says, you just get up and pound the rock every day. We just get up and light the fire. My grandfather started it just to put food on the plate for his family. And my dad grew up in the restaurant. They literally lived in the back. His bedroom was our storage room. So him being at the restaurant is him being at home in his mind. He doesn't really know how to leave. So it allows me to do these other things, though, because he's there like watching over everything at the home base.
0: So how do you see the legacy continuing?
1: In a lot of different ways. The American dream. You know, we grew up being that American dream was this white picket fence and this middle class existence of this nice car in the driveway and nine to five job and all of those things. And it worked a lot for America in a lot of different ways. But I think the new American dream is the dream of the immigrant. It's about what you've been through to, to stay where you're at. And that's always the challenge in business. You know, when you think about it, it's like the challenges of, like, what you've gone through to get here. And that's the American dream. And I think that's the legacy that people identify with. So in order to continue that story with our retail brand, our food truck, people in the AT&T Center, like, they're like, oh, that looks like me. And I think those are things that I, as a Davila food group, Could continue to develop with our brand is like communicating with people and connecting with people. I think there's a lot of connections to be made through food. It's a straight and narrow way to connect like heart to heart.
0: Adrian Davila is the owner of Davila's Barbecue and CEO of Davila's Food Group. He's also the author, with Ann Volkwine, of Cowboy Barbecue, Fire and Smoke from the Original Texas Vaqueros. We spoke outside his food truck, Davila's on Wheels, at the Besame Bar and Food Truck Park in San Antonio. Davila will be introducing his style of Tex-Mex Barbecue to New York audiences on September 8th and 9th at a pop-up event in Greenwich Village called Tacón Madre. The menu includes his takes on traditional foods like lengua, beef tongue, fideo, and mollejas, sweetbreads or thymus glands. Also, CBS News profiled Davila and his restaurant in Seguin earlier this year. We have a link to that video at tpr.org. Thanks for joining us for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marianne Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at TPR.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.